at the point, the fact that God's people were thinking that he was keeping silent. The people who had, who had been crying out in their oppression and their hardship and their difficulty seemed to think at the, by many at that point that maybe God wasn't listening. Yet they're still oppressed, they're still held captive, so they've been crying out to God, and nothing's changed, so maybe he's not really listening. Maybe really God isn't speaking to his people during this time. And yet God says right here, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet. He never was silent, never was quiet. Now maybe he wasn't doing things the way they wanted to be done, relieving their oppression right away when they wanted it, how they wanted it. But he was there, and he was listening. He was caring for them. And here he is directly speaking the fact that no more will it even seem like he's quiet and silent. Because now he's going to show them. He's going to show them what great work he has for them. And it may even sound picky, but it's picky for a good reason. For whose sake is he doing this? For whose sake is he going to speak up and show that he's been here the whole time? For Zion's sake. Jerusalem's sake. It's not for God's sake. Not because God's just saying, hey, I'm going to do this for myself because it sounds good and it's great. God's saying, I'm going to do this for the people. For my people. My people who've always been my people, and I've never let go of them. Yes, they experience oppression, but they're always my people. So it's for their sake. This is how God shows his love for the people. He will do this for them. I'm just going to take a brief pause. Are we having difficulties broadcasting? No, we're good. Great. Then everyone who listens online can think, okay, ignore that comment. Good. Thank you. So verse 2, we continue on. I'm glad our people can still keep hearing this. Because... We may have a lot of people listening on the air or online this week. At least we hope, right? Okay, verse 2. So we look at this and it says in verse 2, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called a new name. If you look at this verse, you can break it down into two things. Two things that are a result of God's work for Zion. The first part of that verse, The nations shall see your righteousness. That's a tongue twister. Nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory. And the second, that you'll be called a new name. So one, as a result of what God's going to do, giving them the salvation, saving them, redeeming them from oppression, people will see this. People will see God's glory. And here is a very strong tie to Isaiah chapter 60. If you have a paper Bible in which to turn back, you may. Otherwise, um, I will read just a, a brief portion of that. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3 says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your glory. Drawing back on the fact that when God shows his glory, others will be drawn to it. Others will see the glory of the Lord shining brightly. And he brings that out here in Isaiah 62 as well. Nations shall see your righteousness. Kings your glory. So that's one result. The second result is that you shall be called a new name. Now, for many of you, if you've done much study of the Bible, maybe this is a repeat, but just to remember, names are extremely significant in the Bible. In God's Word, whenever He uses names in Scripture, and we see places are named different things, and people different names, it's so significant. I think in many cases, a lot more significant than some of the times the names we have today. 
I mean, my parents, honestly, when they chose my name, they didn't choose it because it meant something that they wanted me to be, be or become. They just chose it because they liked the name. Now, I do usually tell the confirmands in class, our 7th and 8th graders, make them squirm a little, my name does mean handsome. Be nice if mother meant that when she assigned it to me, but I don't think she could have any control over that. But think about it. Today, we don't put as much emphasis on names. Now, names are personal. Don't get me wrong. I think everyone, if you were to truly admit it, loves to be called by their name. You like to be called your name. Like you, you like to be know, known that you are known, and that's your personal name. But here in Scripture, we see that names have such a great significance, that meaning that's packed into them. And ultimately, in this Israelite culture, especially in this day and time of Isaiah and time before that, that names were essentially connected with your character. So your name defined what and who your character was. And so here, God is saying in, chapter, in verse 2, you will be called a new name. The people, when they're restored, when they have this new salvation, they're going to be created a new character rather than the oppressed, the exiled, or even, should we call it what it honestly was, the sinful and idolatrous. Because that's what resulted in their oppression. Their idolatry, they're turning away from God. But we'll get to that more in a moment. Verse 3, we just have another beautiful piece of imagery to convey this new condition for the people. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Just simple, the beauty that's conveyed here. That God is calling them crown of beauty, a royal diadem. They're to be treasured and loved and beautiful. And verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and no more your land be termed desolate. Those were their names. Forsaken and desolate. Does that sound very positive to you? Not at all. Kind of a silly question for me even to ask. No one wants to be forsaken. No one wants their land to be thought of as desolate. I mean, desolate land is supposed to be bountiful and producing and giving of much and many. And yet it's desolate. And people are called forsaken. Left, forgotten about, left behind, forsaken, turned away from. And if that defines their character, that's a stark statement. Ultimately, a statement that's true because of their sin. They, are, they should be termed forsaken. But, it takes a turn here in verse 4. You shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called, and your land married. Now, their name is, my delight is in her. His delight. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word delight, I don't... I think in our English language today, it doesn't have a strong force, necessarily. But think about when God uses the word, my delight is in her. It's, it's so much more packed into that. It's the fact that God's looking on them with good favor and love and care. He delights in her. Brings a beautiful smile to his face and eyes light up. It's a wonderful, beautiful term. Now his delight is in her. No, before, he didn't delight in them because they were sinning of their own way, pursuing their own unrighteousness. They should be forsaken. But now he says, I delight in her. He looks to her, cherishes her. And then we have this, type, this discussion of marriage at the end of verse 4 and then into verse 5. What do you think of, what connotations did marriage 
generally bring up for some of you? I'll stick with the positive, because I know there's unfortunately negative in this world. What positive connotations do you think come with marriage? Just the concept of marriage in general. I figured I'd try to ask more questions, but I did it on a snow day. So, here's one I want you to think about. Ultimately, if we think of marriage in the way that God intended it, with a relationship that is truly centered in Christ, the way he intends it, everything is as it should be. One of the things that connotations it brings is joy. To truly be married to someone should and does bring great joy. And not just happiness, but joy. That true joy together, centered in Christ, but together. Second of all, if you think of marriage, brings across the connotation of an exclusive choice. The fact that together, those two who are joined together have chosen to be together and not with anybody else. The way it's designed, remember, God just designs desires for us to be simply with one. Not choosing to be with many, but with one. Also, and this is a, these are, some of these are quoted from a commentary. This next word at first was like, what's going on here? But think about it. Marriage connotates surrender. Surrender. I know at first maybe that sounds like, whoa, what's going on here? But surrender in every positive sense that is really all meant to mean here. The fact that in marriage you are surrendering to your spouse. To submit to them. To love them. To surrender having to be right in a disagreement. Or to surrender what you think maybe needs to be done what the way you think it needs to be done. And instead the way that simply is best for the two of you. To surrender. And the last one kind of going with that is commitment. Ultimately, the way marriage is designed is should be a commitment. A lifelong, permanent commitment. And as I share that, I know that unfortunately in our fallen sinful world, there are many marriages that are broken, that don't experience things like this, that do, but then at times other things. And we're not going to get into all the whole discussion. Remember, there is, there's a, we could get into every case-by-case situation in which there's forgiveness and there's way to work through love and through Christ in those other situations. But here, thinking purely in Isaiah 62 of what a marriage is designed to be, this is what God uses to describe him and his people. The fact that he is married to his people. Your land is married. The Lord delights in you, and as it says at the end of verse 4, your land shall be married. Verse 5, young men shall marry young women, so shall your sons marry you. Bridegroom shall rejoice over the bride, and so shall your God rejoice over you. So God now is using this ultimate, pure definition of marriage and all the connotations it has to describe him and his people. They are to be united together in joy, exclusively together, not with anyone or anything else coming in between them, committed forever and surrendering to each other. That's the picture he uses to describe them. Okay? And so then as we see in chapter 62, these first five verses, there's a huge contrast from the way the people were, really kind of are at the moment as, as they're hearing these words, and the way that they will be. This future restoration, this future salvation that God describes is going to give his people is going to be so vastly different from what they were before. Darkness of oppression and following other things other than God and to the light of God's glory and his beauty and how he will be their only thing, only devotion in life. And ultimately, all of this is only brought along because God does it for them. It's not like all of a sudden they just woke up one day and said, yeah, we're going to figure it out. We're going to do this. 
No, God shines his glory on them, and therefore they get to enjoy all the great gifts he has and he promises here. So Isaiah 62, especially in this epiphany season, really has us focusing on the fact that, that God will manifest his glory for us. He will show that salvation. He brings that salvation to his people. Epiphany season being all about revealing, God revealing who he is and what he's done for his people, especially Jesus Christ. Any questions or thoughts? Yeah, right. Well, when I first read all of that, Right. Talks about his coming, his brightness, and our salvation through him. Absolutely. And he's married to the church. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, afraid, I'm just going to repeat, especially for those online who can listen. But this section, as he said, when he first reads it, it reminds him of Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ, the people have a new name. Through Jesus Christ, we are married to God, given these blessings. And absolutely, amen, you're right. Okay? You can't read, I mean, Scripture is Christ-centered. I mean, Christ running through all of it, so I agree with you. And ultimately, how do we receive our salvation? Through Jesus Christ alone. And it's so fitting, as you mentioned that, giving the new name, because today, this Sunday, we celebrate the baptism of our Lord. And for those of us here at St. Paul's, Pastor Thomas was preaching, especially on baptism, how in our baptism we are given that new name. That name is child of God. Washed, clean, made new, his forever. And that's how we get our salvation. So I agree with you, Fred, absolutely. Any other thoughts or questions on Isaiah 62? All right, wonderful. Let's continue to the epistle for next weekend. Next week in the epistle lesson assigned by the lectionary is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 through 11. And before I read that, I am just going to say we'll probably spend more of our time on this epistle because especially I think um, these words have been used and quoted by many people, especially many different churches. There can be a lot of different discrepancy on them. So uh, I'm excited to get into 1 Corinthians 12, but let's first read those words for us. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Here ends our epistle lesson for next week. Heard this one before? Maybe even different understandings of what is to be said here. So as you can see, we'll get into this. Uh, there's a lot of different um, concepts we can dive into. But looking at 1 Corinthians, in order to, I think, better understand what is said here in these 11 verses, talking about all these gifts... 
Especially we get into this stuff about tongues and all this stuff. We'll get there, okay? As always, it, it helps us to understand context. But I think especially here is key to look at the context. 1 Corinthians being of the letters to the Corinthians that Paul writes. Okay, think about the fact that um, Paul is writing to the city, the people here in Corinth. And so the, the city of Corinth, it has many different kinds of people in it. I mean, it's an ancient city, right? You have anywhere from the, those who served in the army of the time, freed slaves, merchants, different tradesmen, all different types of vocations here in the city, like many other cities as well. But also is a very prosperous harbor city. So with that brings many different visitors to the city, different influences and the like. And I think, as some of you have heard, Corinth was very well known for, I mean, to this day as we study scriptures, very well known for its trade, its wealth, but also its immorality and its idolatry. There was, as we can see in different documents, biblical and even extra-biblical documents, that there's a lot of different types of worship going on in Corinth. Even what we would call various different um, pagan churches, idolatrous churches. And uh, one commentary I read say that, some sources say at least 12 pagan temples were in Corinth, including of the most famous, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so I share this not to just you know, slam on the city of Corinth, but to realize this is the, the setting in which these words are being written. A setting in which the church, the people of God, people of Christ, are influenced by so many things around them. So many different influences come among them. And of those influences, many different pagan religions. Other religions that are tempting them and pulling them to different immoral ways. And even other religions that will, will claim similar things as we see here in this scripture. Okay? So, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, these different house churches. And unfortunately, especially this section is being written to the fact that these house churches had become divided. These how churches had become divided because people had the, their own different interests in the, in the gospel and they were leading people in different ways, straying from the truth and the way that Christ had taught it to them. So unfortunately, they started seeking their own gospel and teaching, straying away from the truth of what God said is and should be. So we get into chapters 12, 13, and 14. I only read the first 11 verses of 12. But I want to give you this layout because if you ever think of it, it goes, if you don't, haven't looked at the way it's laid together, you can miss a beautiful thing of scripture. Chapter 12 presents this broad theology as far as the role of spiritual gifts. That's really kind of what we're going to dig into here in a moment. Chapter 12 as a whole looks at the broad theology of spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 stresses the need that those gifts should be used in love. And if you have your Bibles out, you can go to uh, 13. Verse 4, can anyone quote that verse? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Often used in many wedding ceremonies by people, but love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, and so on from there. That verse coming right here in the section in 1 Corinthians 13, that really pairs on the fact that all these spiritual gifts discussed in 12 should be used and exercised in love. And then chapter 14 digs into specifically the use of tongues. So we understand that all together we see a much bigger picture of Scripture. Any questions or thoughts right off the bat? I know I just presented some broad stroke stuff, but any thoughts right now? Wonderful. I'm covering it thoroughly. Good. So let's go to first, uh, chapter 12, the first three verses. 
Okay, looking just at these first three verses uh, from chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so right off the bat, these first three verses, Paul is addressing the issue. He's addressing the issue that, quite frankly, there's ignorance concerning these spiritual gifts. People do not truly understand what these gifts are and how God is using them for his people. And what God really designed them to be and, and how God describes them to be. So he goes into this and as I said, tongues will be of the primary concern, especially in 14. But as we'll see there in verses 4 through 11, there's multiple different spiritual gifts discussed. So the reality is, is the congregation here in Corinth, the church in Corinth, is not lacking for gifts. They're blessed greatly, given many spiritual gifts. Their problem? They lost proportion of those gifts. They started elevating some, especially the gift of tongues, above the others. As we see here, there's a whole list of them. There's all these different spiritual gifts, and the congregation is blessed ultimately with all of them. Different people receiving these different gifts. And yet the church started elevating some over others. Well, these are better than these gifts. I have this gift. This gift is better than yours. I have tongues. That's more important than uh, wisdom or knowledge or however it might be said. So they started elevating one gift over others or, or however you might put it. But also, the people at that time started stressing more the human, the person who possessed that gift rather than, than the gift itself. Well, I've got this gift. I'm better than you. Look at me. It's not about you. Oh, what God's doing through you. What has God given you? Okay, maybe, so maybe let's take wisdom. Maybe you are wise. It's not about you being wise and you exercising and you, you, you. Look at God. He's the one who's given you that wisdom. He's the one who's blessed you with the wise ability to discern and to use that discernment for others. Sound like an issue that might pervade today even? I mean... As we'll talk about, these are specifically spiritual gifts, and there's other gifts that were given in this world, but ultimately, unfortunately, because of sin, all too often we do stress more the person than the gifts. Or we too in our world today are more are tempted to elevate some gifts above and over others. And yet ultimately, all is of value, and God can and does use all people and all gifts and all things in this world for his purposes. Some things may look more glamorous, and yet, they're all important. None is really better than the other. And so that's the issue that we have here. As I said, tongues are really going to become um, the foreground issue as far as which gifts are, are a challenge for the people. Because um, in reading, understanding more of the culture at that time, uh, at that time, some of the Corinthians, formerly in their previous um, followings, used to be devotees of pagan cults that follow these ecstatic ways of using tongues. So there were these other religions, other pagan religions at that time that would claim to have speaking in tongues. And so these people were hearing that from these other, other influences. And you hear God is saying, yes, it's a gift, but it's not better than the others. And we also need to be wise about it being a gift of God and not making it to a human thing. So all of these gifts should be used to glorify God. I almost feel like I don't even need to say that here. 
I mean, we say it so many times in our church, right? That all should be done to God's glory and to God's praise. And here's another portion of Scripture that shows us that. These many different gifts, however they might be, and all is to be used to give God the glory. Because through these gifts, we are able to say Jesus is Lord. Okay? And you'll see the Holy Spirit's presence is just soaking this passage with Holy Spirit. Okay? You see it all, so many times. I, I didn't even count. How many times does it say Spirit in here? And as it makes clear, this is not a divided spirit. This is not multiple spirits. This is the one Holy Spirit. The one Holy Spirit that enables people to confess they believe in Jesus Christ. The one Holy Spirit that gives them the gift of wisdom or discernment or tongues or whatever it might be. Holy Spirit's work is just ever prevalent here. All right. Any other questions before we now? Let's look at these gifts and understand them a little bit individually more, more specific. Yeah. Yeah, so you mean that the irony that they were speaking before these other religions in tongues that didn't, to a God that really didn't do it. Right, and then now here God is using these tongues for his work and his people. Yeah. Did you have a friend up, hand up too? Some time ago I heard this about tongues. And some ago I can speak any tongues. But also St. Paul writes that for people to understand what you're saying, you're dabbling a lot of words. Right. Yes, and we're going to get to that. So um, your point there that, you know, some people brag, well, I can speak in all these tongues. Well, quite frankly, if you're just speaking in tongues and everyone can't understand you, you are just babbling. What good does it do to the rest of the body of Christ if you're speaking in a tongue that nobody can understand? And, and we're going to get to that um, more specifically here in a moment. All right, so let's look at these gifts. Uh, verse 4 there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And as we look at this variety of gifts, first I want to touch before we get into that, that this, the, with these gifts, the Greek words that are used here is charismata, related to Greek word also charis, which is for grace. And then it also, if you think of it in our English language, charismata, I think maybe already in your heads you're starting to think of the word charisma. If I were to put it up, if I had a board, you could see this. It'd be so much clearer, you'd be able to see all these connections. You'd be right on top of it. Okay, but so charismata related to charis and charisma, just, I share that to say that the root of that word is charis, which is grace. The fact that these are freely bestowed on the people. We talk about grace all the time in our church because grace is God's, God giving it to us, freely giving it to us. The tagline we say all the time, it's not us working, earning, deserving it, right? And that's the core center here. As, as we get into these gifts, it's because of God's grace unmerited, nothing that they did. They were simply blessed with these different gifts. Which if you think about the issue, the challenge that they're dealing with, it's not like you did something better than someone else to receive this gift. Simply God blessed you with this gift and someone else with another. Okay? So we get into these gifts and, oh, I can't say that, I can't skip over this point. All Christians are blessed. Okay? God blesses every single one of his people with different gifts. And so especially as we get into this, I encourage you, don't be thinking, okay, which one do I got? Which one of these is mine? Wait, I can't figure it out. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is, is God gives us here an illustration of the different gifts that he's blessed his church with. Some only in former times and some more now and here in the here and now. 
But the reality is this, this list is not exhaustive, okay? God blesses his church greatly. And every single one of you are blessed. So as we read through this, don't be concerned. Oh, I don't have one. I'm just nothing. No, 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 no. You are all blessed, okay? So we look at this, and the first gift we get to in verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and the second one the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. Here we look at wisdom and knowledge, okay? Wisdom just simply being the wise application of the knowledge, and knowledge being the, the knowledge of God and who he is and what he's done, and, and um, basic, the basic teachings of the Christian faith. Okay, so wisdom ultimately is the wise application of that knowledge of God and his son and Jesus Christ. And both of these gifts are the ability to offer counsel and help of the gospel through the mutual conversation of the saints in Jesus Christ. So both of these gifts, wisdom and knowledge, are to be used to encourage, to build up the body of Christ. Okay? Next gift, verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Pause for a second. Everyone's been, everyone through Jesus Christ has been given faith. This is talking about a different kind of faith. Okay? So don't read this to say that, okay, only some people have been given the gift of faith, but I haven't. No, no, no. Okay? The gift of faith here is talking about this in addition to saving faith. And some of the commentators use these words possibly and not to be limited to, but a heroic faith, an extraordinary faith. And some of you might be able to think about it in your life. Maybe there's someone that you just can remember that just they were just everything that they did, happened to them in their life, everything that they experienced, they just somehow seemed to direct it right back and connect it to their faith and had these beautiful statements that just really drew other people back to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's all kind of an example of what we're talking about here. That person that just has been blessed with this extra gift of, of faith to be used to continually direct other people to faith, to trust in God. Not that others don't have faith, again but that they've been blessed with this extraordinary use of their faith in directing people to trust in God. Then we go on to, next, to the next gift, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Okay, the gifts of healing. Now, this gift of healing is looking at the fact that it's a, a more miraculous healing, okay? We have many doctors and nurses... I don't know if everyone here is doctors or nurses, okay? But think about it in our congregation and even in our communities, all these doctors and nurses that use their gifts, and that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. Here, when he's talking about healings, he's talking about this miraculous types of healings. Think about in the scriptures, the healings that the disciples were enabled to do. And they would go to people and they'd do these miraculous healings. And another thing, kind of tag, similar to what Jesus' healings then when he did, is think about these characteristics of those types of healings. They were done simply with a word or a touch. They were instantaneous, complete. They were done to anyone, doesn't matter who they were. They were healing organic diseases, diseases that just simply came about and even included raising the dead. That's the type of healing we're talking about. Do we see that today regularly? Not really. I mean, yes, again, we have doctors and nurses and medical professionals who use their, their other gifts to work. But here, this is specifically more talking about a, a miraculous healing of those, similar to the nature of what Jesus did and he enabled his disciples to do. Okay? So, as I said before, this list is not exhaustive. 
but it's an example of some gifts. And so this being one of the gifts, healing, that we simply just don't see as much today. In the here and now, this present day. Healing, prophecy, and tongues are gifts that we don't see a whole lot of today. Why? Well, okay, I'm not here to answer God's whys. Okay, we can't do that. But why could we possibly surmise why? Is ultimately in the beginning, they encouraged and they provided um, great direction for the early church. Especially in the time when God's church needed it, they really encouraged a lot of people to see God's work and direct them to the Lord. Would that be nice to have today? Sure. But simply, we just don't have those manifestations today. Doesn't mean God's not present, it's just He's doing it different ways. The next one, um, in verse 10, to another, the working of miracles. These are talking about signs and wonders, could be even um, linked to the fact of exorcisms. Okay, and I don't have much more to say on that one. Um, then we keep going to another gift, prophecy. Prophecy specifically looking at, again, revelation, revealing um, God and what he has for the people. But that's specifically centered in Christ. Okay? So this is not the same as just talking about preaching, but looking forward and foretelling of what God is to do um, in the future time. As we see, we even read the prophet Isaiah. That happened much more frequently in previous times. We just don't see that here and now. Now we have God's word, his other prophecies written for us. Then we get to the next one, the ability to distinguish between spirits, distinguishing true and false prophecies, and then the gift of tongues. Speaking and then even interpreting tongues. Okay, and the, You notice those are really ultimately two different gifts at the end of verse 10. As I said, this is kind of the problem gift, but this is a, a supernatural ability to speak a foreign language. It's not you went to school and you spent multiple years studying Spanish and now you can speak Spanish. Okay. Think about Pentecost Day. God enabled the disciples to have this supernatural ability to speak in many different tongues, different languages, so all the nations there could hear. Key things in there. God enabled them. They're speaking in real languages. And also others could hear it. Others could understand the tongue, the language that was being spoken. So back to your point, Fred, the fact that these, these tongues that are being spoken are not just being spoken so that it's for the good of the person speaking it. Another example, okay? Now, I have not been given this gift supernaturally. I spent many a time working to study Greek. Many pastors, you know, were taught to study Greek and Hebrew. So I'm not saying I have a supernatural gift of tongues here, okay? But use the same concept. If I were having studied my Greek, were to stand up here and do all the prayers and everything in Greek, does that do you any good? Not a whole lot, right? If you don't know what's being said, it doesn't do a lot of good. And we know the Holy Spirit can work in ways, right? But again, the point is, is all these spiritual gifts are for the upbuilding of Christ's church. If I'm just here speaking in another language, but it's not building you up in Christ, then it's not of benefit to the church. And that's what he's talking about here. Okay? This is what it's talking about with tongues. And so we look at all these groups, all these gifts. We really kind of have two, a lot of commentators break it into two groups. Gifts of speech and gifts of service. Ultimately, all gifts can be used to, is used to serve, but gifts of speech and service. Okay? Not one of them is more important than the other, but they're all used to build up the church in Christ. Okay? All right, I went through, felt like I powered through kind of quickly. But I wanted to be, get through each one of those gifts. Any questions or thoughts now, having looked at them a little more individually?
I'll admit that before I had spent time studying this portion of Scripture, um, I think this can be intimidating. You think about these gifts, and especially here, the gift of tongues. Even still today, I think the gift of tongues is twisted in different connotations. I mean, there are other different denominations and other religions that use tongues even still to this day, but it's in a different sense than what we believe it should be. And so I think even uh, all of those connotations get brought into this in our minds as we sit here and read, and the reality is, is God's saying some were given the gift of tongues at some point. And some were given the gift to interpret them. Some were given these other gifts. And as I said, again, these are not exhaustive. So who knows what other gifts God may have blessed you with and has blessed his church with and will continue to bless his church with. All right. There are no other comments or questions. Let's go on to the gospel. I know we spent a while in there, but I think, I pray, it was a beneficial time for you. So, John chapter 2 will be our gospel reading for next Sunday. The first 11 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here ends our gospel reading for next Sunday. My guess would be many of you, especially in this Bible class, have heard this account of Scripture before. Um, but just look at it in, in a different way today. First of all, um, this, this account is unique to the Gospel of John. Okay? And, and this, got, this account is the first of Jesus' public works in his ministry. So as he, you know, he was born, think about in Christmas, he was born true flesh and he grew up, right? This is the first event in, uh, in his ministry that really truly shows who he is and what he's going to keep doing. And as I say that, I should even, we should take that, light, that statement lightly because this, I mean, shows he's something special, right? But even here, there's still so much left to be shown. I mean, it says there in verse 11, and we'll get back to it, he manifested his glory. So his glory is seen, and yet, be careful to think, I mean, this being the, only the second chapter in John, the first of his signs, there's still so much yet for him to show the people, Okay? So, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. All right, so, right off the bat, when I went in to do the study for this one, um, there's a wide range of looking at this, this passage. And right off the bat, you hear these words, on the third day. Okay? Just in go going to encourage you not to initially think of the resurrection in a narrow sense. Don't jump right to the resurrection and think, okay, here we go. we got a point by point laid out. This is, the re this is Jesus, the third day, resurrection. This is all tied in right there, okay? 
Let's be careful to not get right to that. But rather, we can look at in this, and I, would, I encourage you, based on my study and, and understanding of this, is that look at this in the sense of a new, crea- new creation. The fact that look at how many times does God show his newness being made in creation here. Yes, we have the third day reference. What newness, new creation will guys make through the resurrection? Yes. But even here you just have on the third day this, this wedding apart of a multiple day wedding feast and celebration. He's doing something new. He's taking water and creating into wine. Making new wine. So I just personally would encourage you as your pastor, well, pastor on air too, I guess, to not necessarily narrowly think of the resurrection. Okay? It will tie in, of course, I think it can, um, but not to get too focused on that. Again, they're here in this wedding, and weddings being a multiple day um, affair at that time, and there was much party, much things that went into that. But here we have then in verse, um, or in verse 1 yet, the mother of Jesus was there. What's interesting is in a, that in the book of John, John does not give us Jesus' mother's name. She's always identified as the mother of Jesus. guess we could look at that a couple different ways, right? But I think it seems fair to say the most significant being that the focus here is on Jesus, not on the mother of Jesus, on Mary, but rather that on Jesus and what he will do. Then at verse 2, um, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, um, So the mother's invited, Jesus is invited along with his disciples. The only reason I bring this up and, and think about this is because there are some commentators who I think get too focused on, okay, well, and the, were the disciples invited or were they just kind of tagged along in there? Point is, they're all there, okay? Jesus, his mother, and his disciples. It's not to look, look down on the fact that the disciples weren't invited. Everyone's invited. It's all part of it, okay? Let's not get tangled up in some of these other little details. So they're all invited, and she says they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First of all, this address as woman is not a derogatory sense. Yes, if I were to go home to my wife and say woman with a certain tone of voice, that would be very rude and not kind to her, okay? This is not what we're intending here, nor would I ever do that with my own wife, okay? So he's not intending this harshness, but rather simply as an address. It's an address he would have used commonly with Mary um, at that time. And actually, um, some commentators note that in other Greek literature, secular Greek literature, it's a similar type of address that's used um, amongst people like this. So it's, it's, it's really kind of a normal, polite way of addressing um, women. It's not like he lacks affection for her. But he says to her, what does this have to do with me? Or to put it in some other people's language today, why is it my problem? Okay. That sounds a little bit crass when we put it there, but he's... he's I say that because ultimately looking at the, the language of this, we see that there's more to this than just saying, well, what do you want me to do about it? He ultimately, but with his words, is, is really actually refusing a request or invitation at first. There is refusal implied in the words and the, the construct of his words that are here. So at first, it's stronger than just, okay, so what's going on? Unless at first it's saying, okay, why is it my problem? I'm refusing that. But as we see, he goes on. And he does it. Now, before we get to him doing the miracle, it says, My hour has not yet come. You heard those words before? As you've studied the scriptures? Multiple times I would, I would pray and hope, yes, as they're throughout the scriptures. This is the first reference to these uh, words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, I want you to picture something for a moment and try to um, think about your approach. 
Let's say this is the first time you're ever reading the book of John. None of you have studied the book of John. Let's even make it even better. None of you have even read the other gospels or the like, right? If you're just reading the book of John for the first time and you hear these words of Jesus, what might you be thinking? My hour has not yet come. I don't know about you, but I might be like, what's he talking about? Right? Think about the fact that so many of us, as I'm hopeful for, have read these scriptures, have studied them before. So we know when he talks about his hour has not yet come, we see the rest of scripture that's tied into that. We see what he will do in his death and resurrection. But if you're just reading the Gospel of John for the first time, you're not thinking that already. You don't know everything else that's going on. So again, my encouragement to not just be too quick to go to to his cross and resurrection. But on the other hand, you are sitting here, and I do hope that you have read the Gospel of John, or at least heard many of these other um, portions of Scripture where he does talk about his hour not yet coming, and then his hour having come. You are thinking about him on the cross and rising from the tomb. That does come to mind. And in that sense, you also might be wondering, why is he talking about that at a wedding? But more importantly, you just start to think, ask those questions. Okay, why is he talking about that? What is that showing us? Because here, as I said in the beginning, I don't want us to get bogged down in, okay, who was invited, who wasn't invited, you know, is he calling her mother or woman or that? I explain that stuff to show you that, look, here, that when we do have a better understanding of the rest of the Gospel of John, the rest of Scripture, we see that Christ is pointing to so much more than this wedding. That this, at this wedding, he's doing a sign. In the Gospel of John, these signs, other signs that you'll see him doing, these signs point to Christ, or point to Christ and who he is and what he will do. That's why he does these signs, to pointing to him being the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, however you want to put it. And as we see there in verse 11, that he manifested his glory. These signs point to his glory, which will show his fullest glory when he raises, rises from the dead. So as someone who has read the Gospel of John, yes, that is going to be packed into your minds and hearts. And I pray it is as you read these words. Um, let's see. Yeah, so I kind of skipped off my notes. So really got into the main point there, the fact that here we have him manifesting his glory, showing it for the very first time in his earthly ministry. Okay? And as we'll see there then at the very last words of chapter, or verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. One commentator was directing me to the fact that in the Gospel of John, Belief and or faith in the gospel of John isn't just believing, but rather believing in him, trusting his promises, and also this relationship with God and with Christ. And isn't that what faith is, too? That if we go back to, as Fred brought up with Isaiah and Christ, him calling us by a new name, giving us faith, that creates a new relationship. That relationship that we are his child, saved by him, made new. And here we see that also in the gospel of John, this faith creates not just believing, him to be the Christ, but be leaving and being in that relationship as well. Yeah. Yeah, I read that the hour has not yet come. And he's using wine here. Reminds me of Christ and the Lord's Supper when he made the Lord's Supper. That's my hour has not yet come. He gave us his supper through the wine. Sure. Yeah, and Fred just going to repeat, as Fred says, this reminding him with water and wine, reminding him of the Lord's Supper. Um, 
I'll just be really frank and honest with you that I'm not sure where I stand on the whole, how exactly does it connect. I think there's a connection. Um, but if you read the commentaries on this, even all the way through Lutheran and, um, and whatnot, there's some differences of opinion on how exactly tied is it. And so I agree with you, and Fred, I'm not discrediting that, that yes, I think we hear this, especially as, hopefully as Christians who know the depth of Scripture, there is a connection, but I'll just admit I'm not sure where my full... Yeah. No, and I think, I I just share that because I'm glad you brought that up, but I don't have any more discourse on that, because actually if you read the commentaries, you can read volumes on this very subject that you brought up, uh, the wedding in Cana and Holy Communion. Yeah, Joe. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And Mary says, do whatever he says. Take care of it, basically. And where does that come from? You know, honestly, I don't know. Because um, we're not told much more, right? Um, my best scriptural guess would be it's just another Holy Spirit working thing. And you think about the Holy Spirit in Mary. I mean, she was, by the Holy Spirit, conceived. I mean, truly, she is blessed by God in various, very extraordinary ways beyond others. That would be my best um, scriptural guess to that. But there, there's some discussion on that. Um, some more in commentaries as well. So. Wonderful. All right, let's close with a word of prayer before the music cuts us off so that all of us can pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, again, you have blessed us with this opportunity. And as we heard today, through your word, you have blessed your church greatly. Since the very beginning of time, and we know, Lord, since to eternity, into eternity, you will always bless your church. And we thank you that you bless us so richly. We thank you especially for the gift of faith, that each and every one of us have faith in you because of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. So may you strengthen that faith, and may you enable us to share that faith with all others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.